And so a biblical ethic of kinship is, is playing with this question of who do I have responsibility to enfold, to be in solidarity with, to bring into the center of our relationships. And of course, the norm in every society is to do that for, if you like, our clan, but even that's up for grabs often in the Old Testament story. Even that often isn't followed in the Old Testament story. But the biblical ethic is to bring the weakest to the center and to always tilt toward those who need enfolding and who need it the most. It's always to embrace those who don't have a family and don't have people to protect them, who don't have a home. So who exactly are Christians responsible for? That is a question that, to some degree, if I'm being honest with you, has plagued me at times as a Christian, as a pastor, as a teacher, someone who is engaged in intercultural missions and ministry, I am routinely disturbed by how difficult it seems to be, at least in the current American culture, to figure out who are we responsible for helping and who do we turn away. And today's episode, I think, if you're like me and you at times have struggled with that question, which I'm sure is most, if not all of us, today's episode will certainly at least help you out in answering the question, who am I responsible for? Because it's with uh, Mark and Luke Glanville. They're brothers. This is actually the first time in uh, ATAP history, other than a crew episode, which we have a crew episode coming up in a couple weeks. Um, a lot of people especially enjoy the crew episodes. Um, but this is the first time outside of a crew episode where I've had uh, multiple people on with me and I had Mark and Luke uh, we were literally on three different like uh, about as far away three people could be from each other Mark being in Western Canada Luke being in Australia and me being in the Southeast United States and North Carolina we got on a call for an interview and discussed their new book um, which is Refuge Reimagined Biblical Kinship and Global Politics and these these brothers man they are phenomenal guys uh i walked away from this interview so encouraged so challenged mark is you're going to hear me introduce him but it's worth repeating uh, mark is an old testament scholar and teaches uh, at regent college which is a fantastic uni- uh, college in western canada and luke actually is an associate professor of international relations at australian national university you really don't have two people who are more uniquely suited to write a book explaining to the church how they believe we should be extending what they call biblical kinship to people who have been displaced from their home in refugee situations. Um, People who are in their home country are experiencing extreme economic hardship. And, you know, we have, at least in the United States, I know we have a ton of international listeners, um, but in the United States, in Western Europe, um, and really all over the world, in the last few years, I think immigration, migration, immigration in, in general has been a hot topic and for, for obvious reasons. And so when I saw the opportunity to have these guys who just put out this book um, on the show, I jumped at it because I really think every Christian and every church should have to wrestle with these questions of, you know, who am I responsible for? Um, who's hurting am I responsible to address? 
And these guys helped me at least through that question. And I believe that they're going to help you too. So I'm really excited for you to hear the interview and the conversation that I was just honored to have with these guys. If you don't um, already follow all things, all people on Instagram, make sure you do that. All things dot all people also check out uh, the Glanville's information in the show notes. Go check out the book. If this is something that interests you, um, and also, uh, in a, in a couple of weeks, as I said, we're going to have a crew episode. That crew episode is actually going to be on eschatology, the end times. So if you have a question about end times theology, if you have a question, um, about, you know, maybe something you're confused about, something that you're passionate about, and you want to hear me and the guys address it on this crew episode, uh, go ahead and shoot me an email at Jeremy at all things, all org, or DM me on the Instagram at all things dot all people. Um, So get ready for that episode. But the most important episode, of course, is the one that you're listening to right now, which is with our Christian thinkers for this week, walking us through, as only really they possibly could, a difficult but extremely important conversation about biblical kinship. And that is our Christian thinkers for this week, Mark and Luke Glanville. My next guests are brothers. Mark is an Old Testament scholar and associate professor of pastoral theology at Regent College. And Luke is an associate professor of international relations at Australian National University. Both of them established authors and academics. They have teamed up to write Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics, a book which drives a biblical stake in the ground by displaying an unassailable argument for an ethic of welcome for people who are seeking a home. So here today to discuss the book and the ethic that they are explaining and proposing are Mark and Luke Glanville. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show. We were speaking in, in pre-show and I alluded to one of the things that I found most interesting about the book and about you guys is that um, never in my life did I think that I would see uh, somebody with an expertise in international relations like Luke and then uh, an expertise in Old Testament scholarship like Mark uh, writing a book together on something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so unique. So, um, Mark, what was it that that brought about? Obviously, the two of you having this uh, this brotherhood, of course, first and foremost. But um, how was it that you guys found yourselves in this position to write a book that combined the two expertises so well? We were both. I was thinking as an Old Testament scholar and writing as an Old Testament scholar about forced displacement in ancient times and also engaged in welcoming newcomers in Canada and Australia in different ways. And I was finding that as I made a biblical argument for welcoming vulnerable immigrants or or welcoming refugees, some of my Christian friends or Christian scholars might push back and say, well, that's fine. There might be this biblical ethic, but what does it look like on the ground? You know, what if they take our jobs? You know, uh, what if they're terrorists? What if they, this encourages people smugglers? And so I could then start to answer, offer these kind of beginning answers to these very good questions, um, but I couldn't complete it. And then uh, on the other hand, well, Luke, you tell your side of the story. Oh, yeah. Just whenever I tried to bring um, political theory or international relations to offer an argument to Christians for uh, greater generosity um, or justice for refugees, I'd often get the pushback. 
Well, yeah, sure, the Bible says welcome the stranger, but it says a lot more than that too. What about Romans 13, which seems to be much more state-centric and about caring for one's citizens perhaps? Or what about just the broader complexities of Scripture that, that push in numerous directions? We can't just reduce the call to welcome the stranger to welcoming strangers. Mm. So one day Luke was actually on his sabbatical from Australia where he lives, Canberra, Australia, here to Vancouver, Canada, where I live, and he was spending a couple of months here researching and thinking, and one day on a Vancouver beach or in a Vancouver cafe, we realised that we were both reaching this impasse, but if we combined our disciplines, Luke could take care of those political theology, the practical arguments, the international relations side of things, and show that this isn't just plausible, but very doable. And I could take care of the biblical ethics from Old Testament and New Testament perspective. And we could put a stake in the ground that shows that, okay, you know, one third of the global population is Christian. And if just Christians take the Bible seriously, when it comes to people on the move seeking a home, we can make a big difference. This is doable mm -hmm. and biblical. Yeah. And it seems so timely, of course, uh, anybody who's listening, who's been paying attention to the news for really, of course, for hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, Mark, you mentioned that there's forced displacement in the Old Testament itself, but also uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, so many countries um, in Africa, so many countries in the Middle East and Central Asia being war-torn have led many countries and many peoples to ask themselves how willing they are to take mm. refugees, to take migrants of, of any kind. And it's interesting to me that both of you seem to be saying that in one fashion or another, whether it, Luke, it came from the international relations perspective or Mark from the, the biblical perspective that you were getting resistance to a certain degree, is that somebody would throw in an argument that say, uh, no, you have to think about it from a diplomatic mm. point of view, or in the case of Luke, no, you need to think of this from a biblical point of view. And, and when I was reading the book, I just thought, man, here's two guys who are in the middle of their career who just wrote a book on maybe one of the least popular topics uh, in, insofar as attracting an audience. And you argue in the book, uh, and Mark, you, you alluded to this as well, that God's people are consistently called to extend kinship, which is a book that is a word that's thematic throughout the entire book, a mutual responsibility and solidarity to those who are marginalized and without a home. And so along with, uh, you know, not just seeing the need and, and also too realizing that the two of you have these, these expertise that were so valuable, but what allowed the two of you to overcome the idea that in Australia and Vancouver, Canada, and then in my home country in the United States, this message is not especially popular that Christians need to be the ones leading the way in extending kinship. Mark, can you kind of speak to that of how you guys overcame that problem? Yeah. I mean, I think at a hard level uh, in every church community, you know, there are those compassionate people who are longing for a different way. You know, I often see it, if I may, even in the middle-aged women, in every church, there's a good number of people who are just living out the gospel, living out the tenderness of Christ in their lives and their neighborhoods, and they're, they're aching for a different vision of church and a different engagement. And I see that among millennials. I see it among millennials, like anything. There's, they know the tenderness of Christ in the Bible, and they're longing to be shown and their imaginations to be opened up to what this could look like for the church and for the nation. And so I think that doesn't just give me courage. Um, it gives me um, an imperative. You know, I, I feel like the call on my life is, is to re-narrate the biblical story and display this tenderness of Christ 
that millions of Christians know is there when they read the Gospels, when they read the Old Testament. They intuit it's there. They know Jesus like that. They know Jesus' tenderness. And they want leaders and authors who are showing what this can look like for their church community, what an intentional community can look like that's following Christ's way, and what it can look like for a nation and what it can look like politically. That's what I think. I think people are crying out for this, even though it may not be the most popular message. I think that there millions of Christians are crying out because they know Jesus. Mm. Yeah. And Luke, um, your field, uh, not inherently religious necessarily. Mm. Of course, some people might be studying a field such as yours, maybe at a religious institution, but there is no mandate for somebody who's uh, studying at a high level international relations to bring in their particular religious convictions, but yet here you are with your name on a book in which you do that very <laughs> thing. Um, is there any resistance in the international relations community to allowing uh, an ethic to be uh, predicated upon a person's religious beliefs like you guys have done? I haven't felt any, any pushback at all, which has been lovely. Um, yeah. Plenty of colleagues don't seem particularly interested in the uh, project. <laughs> Sure. But quite a few colleagues um, see uh, that it, it seems like an inherently significant thing to do. Like it's well known, I think, that um, or particularly, so I'm, I'm based in Australia and, and it's well known that uh, Christian voters in Australia have a great deal of influence uh, and even more so in the US, it seems. Um, and so to write a book explicitly for that audience, mm -hmm. uh, trying to... Um, argue for a better way uh, compared to kind of the dominant message that uh, is often given by Christian leaders in terms of, um, yeah, kind of a, a better way than the Christian nationalism that we so often see or the, yeah, the, the selfishness that we so often see. Um, yeah, non-Christian yeah. colleagues here uh, and elsewhere just, I, I think, understand that that, yeah. that could be a useful contribution. Yeah, and I suppose that... Lovely. Yeah, which which is sometimes I find that somebody not having interest is better than somebody right. being uh, antagonist to it. So uh -huh. so we can praise God for that. Um, Mark, you you mentioned uh, and you used the example of the hypothetical middle aged woman in a congregation um, who who might just be living out the gospel. You said, and as a pastor, I, I can relate to that sentiment so well. I find that it's interesting though what you guys are are proposing in the book. And we'll, I want to dig into the contents of the book here in just a minute. But um, when you say living out the gospel, I found as a pastor that sometimes when you begin to tell someone that living out the gospel means that they are to be hospitable or welcoming or loving to someone who is inherently different than them, whether that be racially, philosophically, in some form or fashion, um, that all of a sudden, maybe the volume gets turned up, that it becomes a little bit more difficult to live out the gospel. Um, what, what went through your mind when you were writing this from a biblical scholar's perspective as to how this might be received by the lay Christian who is, like you said, living out the gospel, but now this is for some people going to be asking more of them than they maybe are ready for. I think as a pastor, as a teacher, and as a trainer of pastors, the crucial questions are, if I may, what is the gospel? What is the biblical story and what is mission? And I get my students to think about that literally almost every week. Often I begin the same class, if you like, every week 
getting the students to take five minutes in quiet to write down what is the gospel, what is the biblical story, and what is mission. And it never gets boring because I believe that we can sharpen and grow in our understanding of this all through our lives. So if I may, uh, we can narrow the gospel down to an individualistic salvation, but a salvation that's also otherworldly. It's about, uh, and this is wrong, I think, just simply trying to escape this material world into something spiritual and wonderful. But the, the, the biblical story is a lot deeper and richer and more creation-wide than that. What, um, when the gospel is defined in the New Testament, for example, say in Romans 1, 1 and 2, and the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, according to Paul, focuses on three things. It focuses on the, the story, the Old Testament story that the gospel is the fulfillment of or uh, the answer to those Old Testament and intertestamental anticipation. So the Old Testament story. Then second, Jesus as a Messiah, which means the anointed king. And then third, Jesus, life, death and resurrection, especially the resurrection. What does that do to our understanding of the gospel? It means that Jesus comes. The gospel is the announcement of God in Christ at last fulfilling these Old Testament yearnings. And those Old Testament yearnings, and I know this because I'm an Old Testament scholar, is nothing less than God working by grace through a people for literally the renewal of the creation. Of course, the Old Testament story starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation story. And that story shows, I mean, the heart of the theology of Genesis 1 and 2 is simply that, good has, that God has created a good world with care and delight. And if God creates a good world with care and delight, we can expect that God doesn't give up on that world, but is in the business of restoring that world. And so when we come to Genesis 3 and we see the fall, we don't just see a ruptured relationship between humankind and God. We do see that, to be sure, but we see the corruption of God's good creation, of sin reigning parasitical, corrupting, polluting God's good creation. And so when God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, God is setting down, he's setting off on the long road of recovering the divine purposes for the creation, because this is my father's world, as we sing, and it's still my father's world. And God doesn't give up on this world. God doesn't junk what God has made, because God didn't make junk in the first place. And so the law, when the law is shaping ancient Israel, for example, uh, in Exodus 20 to 23 or Deuteronomy 12 to 26, the law is doing nothing less than shaping a contrastive community, which was ancient Israel, shaping them to be a light to the nations, to live with this beauty, this flourishing that brings the weakest to the center that humankind was always created to live with in the first place. So now we come to the New Testament, we come to the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus, now at last the Father in Christ, in the Messiah, fulfilling and bringing into reality this Old Testament anticipation. And so the gospel is creation-wide in its scope. Now at last, in Christ, the Father is setting out to heal the world in power and, in fact, to gather a people, which is the church, to live as a sign and an instrument and a foretaste of this restoring reign in Christ. So when we understand the biblical story aright, then we start to get the gospel aright. We realize that it's creation-wide, and in terms of what it's doing, it's healing and bringing flourishing and bringing the weakest to the center. And the gospel is God doing that in power in Christ 
and calling a people to live as a witness assigned to what the Father is doing. So that is what I think is very, very important, Jeremy, that as we as pastors and as, as teachers, we don't just come and say, okay, now it's time to welcome immigrants and refugees because here's 10 texts that it says that in the Bible. Of course, it does say that in the Bible right. in 100 texts, but those 100 texts come in the context of a biblical story that is restorative in its trajectory. And in, in your emphasis on the gospel as creation wide leads so well. And, and that was such a profound explanation. Thank you so much. But it leads so well into what is maybe the, the most key word uh, in the book, which is kinship. Um, and, and of course, the book Refugee Imagine Biblical Kinship in Global Politics, which certainly needs it. You lay the book out into four sections with each representing a part of the ethic and argument you're showing. And throughout each section, the idea of kinship continues to be woven. So for those who have not read the book yet, and if you're listening and these guys have already won you over to say, I need to, I need to read this book, or if you're a teacher, you need to teach this book. Um, when you say kinship in this book, uh, Mark, why don't you start off by telling us what you're proposing the Christian see biblical kinship as? Right. So as Western individualists, we can easily read the Bible and miss the way the ethics are working. Uh, it's a kinship culture, both the culture of the Old and New Testaments, where it was all about family. And even if it wasn't about my nuclear family, it was always a question of who am I responsible for? Uh, who do I need to take kinship responsibility for? Who does God or who does society expect me to protect and enfold? That was from the perspective, if you like, of a landowner, someone who had means. From a perspective of a vulnerable person, such as in the Old Testament, an orphan or a widow, or in the New Testament, you might find a sinner or a prostitute or maybe even a tax collector. So their question was, who is going to enfold me? Who is going to take kinship responsibility for me and give me a subsistence, give me a place to belong and a way to live and way to eat? You see that, for example, of course, in the Ruth story, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, he didn't have to take kinship responsibility for Ruth and Naomi, but he, but he chose to. And that was uh, a good thing in the ethics of the story. And so a biblical ethic of kinship is, is playing with this question of who do I have responsibility to enfold, to be in solidarity with, to bring into the center of our relationships. And of course, the norm in every society is to do that for, if you like, our clan, but even that's up for grabs often in the Old Testament story. Even that often isn't followed in the Old Testament story. But the biblical ethic is to bring the weakest to the center and to always tilt toward those who need enfolding and who need it the most. It's always to embrace those who don't have a family and don't have people to protect them who don't have a home. And we show that, for example, the way that's working in the book of Ruth. We show this relentless uh, call to enfold the stranger's kin in the book of Deuteronomy. And, uh, and then in the Gospels, we show Jesus' way of becoming family uh, at table, certainly, but in many other ways with those uh, who felt like they were on the outside of society and didn't belong. This is a biblical ethic of kinship. If you want to say it in a nutshell, bringing the weakest to the center yeah. and being, becoming makeshift family with them. And Aaron and I, we try and work, out, work this out in East Van in our lives. We try and we, we really think hard, who's at our table? Literally, who's at our table? You know, in Luke 15, 1 and 2, people charge, you know, mock Jesus. This man befriends tax collectors and sinners, and he even eats with them. 
So Erin and I try and ask each other quite literally, who's at our table? Because that's who we're leaning into. That's who we're becoming family with. And just for listeners on the call, Jeremy, I just invite us all to think that that through. Because sometimes I think, you know, we might be resistant to newcomers, to refugees or to vulnerable immigrants at the US-Mexican border. But often that our fears can actually reflect the way we're living. We can be living pretty homogenous lifestyles where everyone is the same as us. But once we start to try and share table I, creatively with the kind of people that Jesus shared table with, that is to say, people who didn't feel like they belonged, they were on the margins of society, they didn't have honor, then all of a sudden uh, our fears start to subside and now we actually start to experience the joy of the kingdom of God. And Luke, you, you bring this perspective then as uh, one who's studied the diplomacy between nations and various groups mm -hmm. of people, the, the, a little bit more of the technical aspect mm -hmm. uh, to the book. So when discussing biblical kinship and kinship in general, uh, what was your perspective that you brought into the book uh, for listeners who haven't gotten their hands on it um, and, and how you viewed kinship and desire to see Christians view it? Yeah, I, I, we find that um, the kinship ethic and the kinship motif is a very useful way for talking through um, how this biblical ethic applies to nations and how it applies to uh, relations between nation states. I think the, um, it's not hard to think of examples where kinship is used to justify exclusion and harm of outsiders, but the biblical ethic, in contrast, demands the relentless effort to include as kin the marginalized and the vulnerable. And I think you can see that possibility and argue for that hope at the level of nations. So, so nations talk um, uh, in, in terms of founding fathers, for example, and, and brotherhoods and sisterhoods. Uh, there, there's a lot of kinship language that goes on in how we talk about our fellow um, citizens and our national community. And often that can be constructed and put to uh, really problematic ends uh, to justify unjust wars and exclusion of outsiders. But uh, there's a wonderful scholar, Benedict Anderson, that talks about nations as imagined communities. Hmm. And I think uh, this ethic of kinship uh, offers us a, a lens on how to reimagine our national communities. And similarly, at the level of the globe, we, we talk about... Um, Martin Luther King, for example, talks about the brotherhood of, of humankind uh, in, in some famous speeches where he's um, loudly opposing the Vietnam War, for example, which is really evoking, again, a, a, an ethic of kinship at, at the level of the globe. Um, obviously, again, kinship can be used really problematically at the interna international level to talk about certain families of nations that exclude and even colonize other nations. Uh, this language of kinship can be used to justify appalling atrocities. But again, the biblical ethic points to a, a much better, beautiful way in how not just, relate, not just how nations can relate to outsiders, but how nations can collectively act to care for those that are marginalized and vulnerable. So, Luke, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, and, and perhaps there's somebody uh, who who is interested in international relations and things like that listening, mm -hmm. or or maybe somebody who might be looking at this issue from a secular perspective, would, would I be correct then in saying that um, even for the secular government or even for someone going about this who is not potentially a Christian, the biblical ethic 
is perhaps the one that could lead to the most human flourishing then in your mind when it comes to um, how to view immigration, how to view the welcome of the refugee, even if you aren't a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I don't think kinship is the only ethic available uh, that we can derive from the Bible for thinking about refugee issues. Languages of human rights and responsibilities and hospitality and love are, are very useful and important too. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think just that kinship offers uh, a new way of approaching this issue and I think a more potentially more transformative way mm-hmm. and, and a more demanding way for Western nations to really grasp not just um, to, to, to rethink their engagement with issues of forced displacement so they're not thinking in terms of what, what might be the generous thing to do, what might be the charitable thing to do, but what are, what are we called in the Bible to do and what does, what does our principles of justice require mm. of us, yeah. particularly given the uh, entanglement uh, at the international level, the, the extraordinary entanglement of national communities in, in the relations of other national communities historically and present day. And that's something we really emphasize in the book, the, um, the past injustices that underpin so much of the uh, inequalities that we see in the world today that generates the kinds of crises that generates the kind of forced displacement that Western states try to run away from. Mm. We're deeply implicated in this um, as kin with our fellow brothers and sisters around the world. Absolutely. And the theme of justice, um, the question really of, of how a Christian should view justice is at the heart of the entire book and, and, and was, drives the need for kinship. And in discussing kinship throughout the book, you tell this story that as I read it, I really desired to know more uh, of what happened. It's about a priest in Mexico who helped a community organizer who had been arrested and had been put into a Mexican jail. And in the story, it was made clear that there was a fear of the police that might uh, that the police might have taken the organizer away and potentially even murdered him. So this Catholic priest uh, goes to hear his confession. That's how he gets into the jail uh, and then slips a lock into the prisoner that he can use to lock his cell in case the police uh, try and enter the cell and abuse him and potentially even murder him. And, and as compelling as this story is, I found myself uh, sort of asking the questions about the story that I knew that many of my friends and many of the people in my congregation might ask. Um, and it really centers around justice because we have two opposing ideas happening potentially and probably even more than that in regards to justice. Um, and Luke, you know, as someone who studies and teaches uh, international relations and, and topics involving government, how should the church see itself in light of the governmental authorities over that, over it, because this is why I ask this Mexican priest is obviously breaking a law by opposing the police of his local municipality. But the argument of course, that is that he's fighting against injustice. And I think at least here in the United States where political parties and and groups of people pride themselves at being the most law and order uh, group, and that seems to be a common debate that I hear all the time. How should Christians then navigate the tumultuous waters of seeking justice, but also being able to recognize injustice when it exists? Yeah, great question. I, I, I think often it, um, the argument that I often hear from Christians um, in response to those kinds of stories um, of that priest uh, working against governmental authorities or uh, in stories of um, 
undocumented immigration, particularly the US-Mexico border, but also elsewhere around the world. So often I think Christians quickly go to Romans 13 um, and draw from that um, an assumption that any activity that violates the prevailing laws of a nation state is inherently unjust, immoral, uh, not for Christians to be involved with at all. Um, and I, I, I think that's a, a troubling reading of, of Romans 13 for, for a number of reasons, not least because the, the Bible holds up numerous examples of um, people uh, breaching prevailing laws of their state. Uh, think of the um, Hebrew midwives um, protecting uh, newborn infants in opposition mm. to the laws of Pharaoh. Think even of uh, of the the apostles uh, Peter uh, loudly saying in Acts that uh, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Mm-hmm. Think even of Jesus disobeying the laws of the time so often for the sake of those in urgent need mm-hmm. uh, and for the sake of the vulnerable. I think a, a much uh, deeper, more careful reading of Romans mm-hmm. 13 in its context is necessary. Mm-hmm. And again, throughout um, Christian history, there's, there's numerous examples of um, Christians disobeying prevailing laws for the cause of justice. I don't mm-hmm. think we need to be careful not to equate the law with justice. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark, um, as, as someone who is so well-versed specifically in the Old Testament, um, so often Christians approach the state of Israel as depicted in the Old Testament and sometimes can apply wholesale the teachings of the Torah or the teachings of the Old Testament to potentially maybe the church today or even how we should deal with government. How have you navigated and helped your students and uh, the people you've been pastor over understand the difference between the state um, as shown in the Old Testament um, and the state in which we're living now where our governments are not theocratic uh, bodies uh, in, in the least? Sure. I mean, we could start just with the tenderness in the Old Testament and copy that. I mean, mm. you could even just take the Torah seriously. The, the stranger is mentioned 12, 22 times in Deuteronomy, 21 times in Leviticus, and always with this call to welcome, to enfold as kin. So even if we were to take the Old Testament very, very seriously as we should and think that it's God's word quite directly to us and even overplay that, uh, then we'd end up with much more tender and generous immigration laws when you la- layer that with the, the complicity that Western states have in causing the displacement, including in Latin, South America and in Central America. This becomes even more pressing. Um, but to be sure, how can you move from the Old Testament to today very carefully? Well, actually, the metaphor we use um, in the book, I'll just repeat, we use the metaphor of playing jazz and playing mm-hmm. out of the jazz tradition, actually, Luke and I are both jazz musicians yeah. by trade, and Luke's a jazz drummer. I'm a jazz pianist. And we Tremendous both- videos on YouTube, by the way, for uh, listeners to go check out. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll even link to them in the show notes because I'm a big fan of jazz All music. Right. And when, when I found this out about the two of you, I thought, this is tremendous. Scholars <laughs> and jazz musicians. That's, that's awesome. Appreciate the shout out, Jeremy. And the, Luke and I and any jazz musician has spent thousands of hours studying the tradition we, we, we tap the rhythms, we see hum the harmonies, walking down the street, listening to our Walkmans, because we all used to have Walkmans, right? 
And and then each time we come to play jazz, of course, there's fresh creative improvisations from within the tradition. And that's what we do when we uh, read the Bible. We discern the ethical, in this case, traditions within Scripture. And in the Old Testament, of course, this is for, was for uh, the nation of Israel, which was like a sandbox model of the divine desire for all of humanity, but contextualized to a very ancient pan-Mediterranean context, which isn't our context, but we can learn tradition. We can learn God's heart. We can learn tradition from the Gospels, from the epistles of the New Testament. And then what fresh imaginings, what tender improvisations can we play today when it comes to people who are seeking a home? And that's the kind of spiritual creativity that we're called to as genuine biblical readers, as evangelicals, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about um, spiritual creativity. That, that term you just used, um, I think as Christians, of course, are the funnel in which that spiritual creativity might lead us is usually going to be wrapped up in some form or fashion in the person of Christ. Um, and you being an Old Testament scholar, I'm sure in, in navigating this topic, often find yourself uh, pointing towards even the New Testament and in the book while discussing kinship, uh, you both wrote about the, the way of Jesus. Any Christian, of course, should be interested in knowing what Jesus thought and felt about this issue. Of course, we don't get to ask him quite as plainly as we might like. But Mark, being a, a, a biblical scholar, in your opinion, based off of what we have in the Gospels and the New Testament, um, as well as the Old, uh, what might have Jesus or most first century Jews thought of kinship and hospitality uh, based off of the Old Testament teaching? Great question. So if we're to approach this question biblical theolo biblical theologically, God in Christ in the Gospels is doing nothing less than gathering the eschatological people of God. Hmm. So what we see in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, for example, is the disciples gathered around Jesus and Jesus reappropriating the Torah for this eschatological community. And by eschatological, we mean that the wonderful anticipation of Old Testament times is now at last being fulfilled in power by the Spirit in the person of Christ, his birth, life, death, and resurrection. And so Christ is gathering an eschatological community, modeling for that eschatological community, which is the church in the end, and shaping that eschatological community by the ministry of the Word and by the power of the Spirit. And we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we also see in the Pauline epistles, the shaping by the word of this eschatological community. Of course, in the synoptics, which to get directly to your question, we see uh, in Jesus' fellowship meals, Jesus becoming family with all the inverted commas wrong people. But of course, in the heart of God, the right people. Let me just stick with the fellowship meals for a second. You know, some New Testament scholars have said that Jesus literally eats his way through the Gospels. And some people have observed that Jesus tends to do as much eating as he does teaching. And others have pointed out that he seems to do his teaching while he's eating or at the table. In Luke's gospel, that's certainly the case, especially. And these fellowship meals, as I've already said, uh, bring the weakest to the center. And we can think, well, Jesus invents this stuff. This all comes Jesus invents this. But of course, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that this is Old Testament news, that Jesus is being what ancient Israel was always meant to be 
in the first place. Jesus is coming as a true Israel, if you like, and reforming a, a remnant of Israel in his followers. So you go to Deuteronomy 16, for example, as we do in our book, and you see these covenant feasts that bring the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and even the male-female slave, though that's another topic, uh, into the center of the community, feasting there in the presence of Yahweh with music and dancing and everything, and it's awesome. This festive kinship community, up close and personal, celebrating, feasting, killing the fattened calf, feasting on the divine supply, the harvest together, becoming family in the presence of God. And Jesus lives into this in the Synoptic Gospels. And so perhaps just this image of the feast, of the covenant feast fulfilled in Christ and embodied in Christ, and then uh, fulfilled in the church can be an image that can hold that, Im that idea of Christ's way that we use in our book so much. And I think that that must be the relentless question for our church today. The, the cultural moment, Jeremy, I think has turned in our lifetime. I train pastors at Regent College, and I must tell them every week, it's our lifetime that for the first time in 1,600 years, culture has become post-Christendom, Western culture. That is incredible, and it requires tremendous creativity on the part of Christians and Christian leaders. We have to think creatively, but we have to think biblically and read the Bible for all it's worth, not just read our our anemic Christianity into it, if I may, but to read the Bible for all it's worth and to find the tenderness of Christ's way and play some fresh improvisations mm -hmm. in relation to refugee immigration issues, in re relation to creation care, in relation to solidarity with First Nations people say, what is Christ? Uh, so here is the question, Jeremy, I think. I'm going to shut up in a minute. But here is the <laughs> question. I think that we as a church need to look out into our neighbourhoods and we need to ask the question, what does Christ grieve and what does Christ celebrate? We need to look at our neighborhoods and look into our nation and we need to think, what does Christ grieve? And then to grieve it and to lament it, even in worship, to lament it. And what does Christ celebrate? And to celebrate that with our neighborhood and to begin our Christian discipleship by attuning to the emotions of Christ. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that was wonderful. And uh, any listeners of this show who who have been longstanding listeners know that um, I talk about the Sermon on the Mount any any chance I get because um, that to me is just three chapters out of Matthew that just jump out of the page and are mo perhaps some of the most clear teachings and and of Jesus. And you mentioned uh, that it's him developing this eschatological community. He even says it, he says, you are a city on a hill. Uh, and, it, and I've heard, I think N.T. Wright or Tim Keller, you know, somebody describing it as if the church could be that, you know, somebody could walk in and, and see uh, almost like heaven's embassy here on earth. And so it's such a beautiful and profound picture. Luke, I'd love to hear from your perspective as somebody who uh, does deal with questions of government and, and diplomacy uh, more than, than Mark and I, of course. Um, it, do, do you feel that the church in this post-Christendom age that Mark says we're entering, in which I do agree, um, that the church has an opportunity to be a vibrant and active community, which could de depict to the rest of the world what is possible um, if we look at even the issue of immigration, refugee, forced displacement holistically and give a gospel answer for it, do you think that that could be attractive to the secularized world? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, I think so much of our politics 
of thinking about immigration and refugee issues at national levels and also within the church is based on fear. Mm. Um, and I think this has really ramped up over the last couple of decades that um, political leaders and also church leaders to some extent have, have, have taken advantage of the possibility of instilling fear uh, in their populations, in their congregations, fear of outsiders, fear of foreigners, fear of strangers for certain um, selfish ends, really, uh, materialist ends. Um, and the church has a, a mandate and a wonderful opportunity to really change the language of debate so that we're not uh, thinking about and talking about outsiders, vulnerable refugees in ways that dehumanise them, that cast them as, you know, potential terrorists or mm. potential destroyers of our national culture or potential uh, criminals or potential takers of our jobs, but uh, to offer a message of um, hope and love and opportunity to embrace the possibility of being transformed, being joyfully transformed by encountering with and welcoming and uh, enfolding mm -hmm. vulnerable outsiders into our communities. I think we've seen some wonderful examples at, at church levels. Um, Mark's church community, perhaps he might talk about it in a moment, um, have have a wonderful uh, program of, of welcoming and enfolding new refugee arrivals into Canada. You see it at national levels. Like I, I often um, refer to Angela Merkel, so German Chancellor Angela Merkel's decision in 2015 to welcome a million refugees and asylum seekers fleeing the Syrian civil war and other violence and persecutions in the Middle East and Africa in, in the course of just a handful of months. And just seeing the joyful transformation that we saw among the German people grasping this opportunity to do good, to do justice, to share uh, community with vulnerable outsiders, mm -hmm. to, to, as they often put it quite explicitly, to make up to make amends for Germany's past injustices in one way or another to some extent. Um, and to do this collectively, the collective joy of doing this, doing justice in community with others. I think there's examples there that we can really uh, draw on. And, and um, it, uh, the Merkel example isn't perfect. It's a complex example, but it shows real possibility for shifting a disposition from fear to a disposition of love at the communal yeah. level. Yeah. And, and you bring up the, the German example. Um, and to anybody who is familiar with what the last 10 years have looked like in Western Europe um, and all of the crises, you know, particularly the, the crisis a few years ago out of Greece, I believe that that caused a lot of um, refugees. Um, we don't live in an and I we live in a broken world. Mark alluded to that earlier. So, Luke, for you, as somebody who deals with this question, maybe more than most. Um, in the book, what do you suppose to tell somebody uh, what, you know, who, who, who their defense is? There were quite a few things that happened in Germany. Um, maybe they were used mm -hmm. to impose fear, but yet, yet they happened. Um, there are only particular numbers of refugees that we could ever possibly uh, let mm -hmm. in to, to various countries. Um, what are some of the things that you would respond to those, those concerns with while still continuing to uh, propose the biblical kinship ethic? Mm. I think I'd, I would usually probably push back pretty hard 
and say, <laughs> we need to get some perspective on this. Hmm. 85% of the world's refugees live in developing regions of the world, na- neighboring countries to conflict and persecution, places like Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan. So, so Lebanon and Jordan in recent years, one in four or one in six people in those countries have been refugees, Syrian refugees. And they take on uh, an enormous responsibility of caring for vulnerable refugees on behalf of the international community. And these aren't the world's wealthiest states by any means. We in the West often feel, and I think um, the media and and political leaders often uh, play, play into fears once again, such that we feel that the world's refugee population is at our doorstep clamoring to get in um, and, and to take our jobs and to, to cause mayhem. Uh, that's not at all what the situation is globally. As I say, 85% of the world's refugees are in the global south rather than the global north. Um, and so we, when we in the West worry about how many additional thousand refugees should our state uh, be thinking of welcoming next year, perhaps, I think... Um, it's obviously any incremental gains for the sake of um, marginalised outsiders is is wonderful news, but we really need to have some perspective on how much more we could do and how much more others have been and continue to be willing to do. Again, the the stories of Jordan, uh, Turkey, Lebanon's care of refugees is far from perfect, but um, the the world's population of forced displaced people is now up to eighty million people. So when we're thinking, as we in Australia or the US or Canada do, in terms of how many tens of thousands of refugees might we be thinking of taking in, and when we flinch at the thought that we might be taking in too many, I think we've we've really misunderstood what's going on there. The other thing I'd say, though, is also that at the heart of that conversation is often, uh, and this is coming back to something we were saying earlier, it, it is often... We think in terms of what might we do in terms of charity or generosity. That's just not how we um, can justifiably be thinking about these things, given our complicity historically and in ongoing ways in the generation of situations around the world that generate crises and violence and wars and uh, that contribute to climate change and that contribute to food insecurity and water insecurity and that contribute to persecutions of minorities that generates the forced displacement of millions of people. We think of the grievous injustices of, of colonialism from which Australia, Canada, and the US and others continue to draw rich benefits. We think of um, how that involved the extermination of vulnerable people and the exclusion of other vulnerable people. And then we think today of the injustices of, of some of our foolish wars and our reckless arms trading that we're all involved in. And uh, again, our ongoing contributions, our, our overwhelming contribution to the destruction of the global climate, to then think about what we might charitably do for those who are impacted by this isn't the right way of thinking about it. We need to be thinking of the care of those who are impacted by these injustices in terms of justice, in terms of reparations in terms of repentance for harms that we've done. Mark, would you say that for the listener who's trying to digest everything they've heard from you two and, and hopefully they'll, they'll read the book and be able to get it at an even deeper level than we could ever possibly do here in 45 minutes. Would you say that the best place to start for somebody who, 
who's asking themselves some of these questions that that even Luke just laid out. When when someone begins to realize how complicit some of our cultures are in bringing about these problems, and now, um, not that not that America or Canada or Australia is necessarily the only answer to these issues in welcoming refugees. But what Luke is supposing is that we need to at least be open to um, opening the doors to, to, to some of these people, as well as addressing uh, the systemic problems that have brought about these things. Would you say that for the person, the individual, maybe the church community, Luke mentions your church, the best thing to just start with is, well, what can I do? Uh, what, what is the most that I can do? And if we're thinking about the way of Jesus, um, maybe that might be the best place to start. Yeah, I think so. I think that's great, Jeremy. I think finding the way of Jesus in your local neighborhood and offering compassion where we see it. Sometimes we say to ourselves, well, you know, I don't know a refugee, but surely there's a lot, there's a lonely person who's living on your street. Surely there is someone who perhaps is elderly and isolated. Surely there's a lonely child in the school who's struggling to read. I think leaning into the tenderness of Jesus. Um, however, there is a lot going on in the U.S. by evangelical organizations and other Christian mm-hmm. traditions, I think, uh, of World Renew, for example, who are doing such wonderful work throughout the U.S. And you can get in contact with them. You can get in contact with the Refugee Highway, North America Refugee Highway, and reach out and see what kind of resettlement is happening in your state and city, and your church can get active, uh, and you can make connections with vulnerable people and the gift of this uh, is that we're mutually transformed. When we get in touch with someone who is vulnerable uh, from in any way in our neighborhood, or if we have the joy of sharing life with a newcomer, we, we do that with the goal of friendship. And while we might serve them, they might serve us, and it's mutual transformation. Mm-hmm. And this is the sort of way that we find the mind of Christ, by, by reach, stepping into Christ's way. I should mention, um, as I mentioned to both of you, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, and many, many evangelical organizations that do this type of work uh, are find their home in my hometown. And um, I was in high school during uh, the Bosnian refugee crisis. And I can remember, uh, I think when I was about a freshman or sophomore in high school, about 30 or 40 refugees from Bosnia becoming part of our student population. And for uh, 2000 uh, mostly Caucasian upper middle class students from suburban Chicago to all of a sudden be introduced to 30 or 40 Bosnian refugees at first was a, was a shock, but I can personally attest and, and having had not a benevolent bone in my body, I was not seeking to serve these people. I was not, I was yeah. completely, I was completely ignorant to the situation that they had left, but yeah. even with that ignorance, they were a blessing to me. And I'm still look back on that thankful that I experienced that culture clash, even at an early age with all the ignorance that I had back then. Um, and so, so for those listening who might be, uh, confused might be, uh, say, I, I, I need more. I don't know exactly how I think about this. Those feelings are good. Um, they need to go check out the book and they need to, to find, um, uh, both of yours information, which is in the show notes, um, as well as I'll link to some of the organizations that do this type of work. But, um, Mark and Luke, you two are tremendous examples of what it looks like to use um, whatever expertise you're in, obviously Mark uh, being a biblical scholar, but Luke um, being in, in a different 
arena, but yet using your talents and giftings uh, for the kingdom of God is, is so wonderful to see. So I'm so thankful that both of you were willing to give me just even a little bit of your time and expertise. And I look forward to seeing uh, what this book does in, in churches. And, uh, and if somebody hasn't picked up on the fact that all three of us are in three different countries uh, at this very moment, uh, that's a great example of maybe how far reaching this book should be. So I hope that it is. But I, I'm, I'm so thankful to both of you for allowing me some of your time. Thanks so much, Jerry. It was wonderful. Nice to meet you, man.